Good morning, Crosswalk. Sorry I can't be with you today, at least in person. I uh, hope you're doing well, and I look forward to being back with you uh, next Sunday. Uh, if you want to join me on Praxis this Wednesday, I'd love to see you. Uh, look forward to having a conversation with you over this really juicy stuff uh, that we continue to plow through on open and relational theology. Uh, today, I want to wrap the teaching around a, a passage in Scripture from Genesis uh, that I think clearly uh, articulates and gives a proof text of sorts uh, to the kinds of things that we're talking about, while at the same time <laughs> uh, talking about uh, a view that is not a part of open and re relational theology. So this comes from the back part of uh, Genesis. I encourage you to take time this week and read the story of Joseph. Uh, his backstory, um, a little bit about his dad and uh, his parents and how this all took place, but Joseph was a key player uh, taking us to the very end of the book of Genesis. And this particular passage that I'm gonna read with you, for you, uh, actually is at the end of a major epic story uh, that uh, featured jealousy, featured favoritism on his father Jacob's part, uh, had brothers who hated Joseph, had Joseph who was completely arrogant uh, and flaunted you know, his favoritism in front of his brothers, uh, ticked them off to the point where they wanted to kill him and were gonna leave him for dead. And then uh, cooler heads prevailed, and they decided to instead sell him into slavery, because <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. And Joseph ends up being a slave in Egypt. He ends up being wrongfully imprisoned, has a lot of time in prison to think about things. He helps a guy out, and in return, asks the guy for a favor when he's on the outside. Hey, remember me? And the guy totally forgot for a long time until he remembered. And then, you know, things got a whole lot better for Joseph. He ends up being second in charge of all of Egypt and really saving the day and saving the people of Israel from uh, famine. Uh, and then the story kind of ends, and then we get into Exodus uh, many moons later. But this is, this is how this, uh, the unveiling uh, of Joseph happens. After all this transpired, he's in Egypt, in his authority, and he finally clues his brothers in about who he is. And this is what he says. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you, to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. So, very interesting story, and at the tail end of this story, uh, you have uh, Joseph uh, saying uh, that he believes that God was in control of this whole thing, uh, that his brothers were simply pawns on the chessboard, and so was Joseph, and everything happened exactly as God wanted it to, so this ending uh, could happen. 
And that's a remarkable uh, amount of faith uh, that is represented in Joseph. Uh, that's pretty, pretty amazing. And actually, it's pretty common. It's a normal way for a lot of people to articulate how things work, especially at the end of the story. Uh, because you get to the conclusion and you look back, you're like, wow, that's exact. God was so in control here. I just can't believe how all these things came together. And so um, that led to a theological position, which is still pretty popular, very popular in our rhetoric, which is that God is in control of everything and you really don't have free will. Uh, John Calvin made this very popular in the Reformation period. And there are hyper-Calvinist churches uh, right here in Napa, one of them in particular, that preaches very clearly God is in total control. Uh, God has chosen ahead of time who's going to heaven and who's not, and the majority of people are not. You really don't have a choice. If you ever go for <laughs> had somebody tell me about a counseling experience they had with them and you know about some really awful things happening at work, and the pastor just simply said, Well, that's God's will, so I guess you just have to deal with it and get on board, you know, kind of a thing. Like everything that happens, good, bad, ugly, is God's will. There's some real problems with that. In fact, a lot of people have big problems with that, so much so that they walk away from the faith because their thinking is if God is really responsible for everything, including the worst atrocities of humanity, I don't want a relationship with that God. Uh, I can't trust that God to be good. Uh, it doesn't matter if in the end it all smells rosy and looks nice. There's no excuse uh, for the millions and millions and millions of people who have suffered uh, that certainly an all-wise God uh, could figure out another way uh, to get to the same conclusion. So a lot of people have simply abandoned uh, the faith because they can't resolve this issue of evil suffering and an apparently very powerful and supposedly loving God. Explain manifest destiny and our own genocide. Explain uh, explain American slavery and the the ramifications of that that have lasted for for so long, 1619 to 2022, and we're still dealing with the effects of that. So some people uh, get into a, a zone where they feel like, well, you know, maybe God is, you know, acting sometimes, but not all the time. And we're not exactly sure when and where. It's just sort of a mysterious. Well, a lot of people that falls flat with because it's like, well, how can you, how do you, how do you count on that? Some people say that it's just all a mystery, but God certainly acts. Same thing. People are like, well, I guess so. I mean, some of this stuff does seem pretty pretty freaky and seems like there's a God behind it, so okay. But again, there's so much mystery with it. How can you really build a life on it? And then some people just say, don't even try. Uh, it's just not even worth the attempt because clearly we have no idea what we're talking about. Well, open and relational theology uh, gives us a framework that I think makes a lot of sense. And again, as I've said before, uh, if you are comfortable in any of those four models of absolute control, um, sometimes acts, sometimes doesn't. Uh, it's too mysterious, but we're pretty sure God's involved, or that God is not doing anything at all in the world. That's another position, uh, that there isn't anything happening from God's side. If you're comfortable in any of those, you're welcome to do that. None of those work for me, and none of those work for a growing number of people in our world. And particularly as we understand more about how the created world works uh, and the more we think about theology. 
So one thing I'm going to do with you uh, today, which may be a little bit uncomfortable uh, for some of you, uh, is I'm going to disagree with Joseph. And because Joseph's quote, quote, (laughs) uh, is in the Bible, I'm going to disagree with this position, which shows up in the Bible. And it's held by probably a lot of people in the Bible. Uh, But I'm comfortable with it because I don't think they had a full enough perspective on it. And this doesn't mean that I know more than God and all that, or know more than the Bible. What I'm saying is that these people at this place in time, it's the best they could do. But Joseph's story itself has holes in it about how he came to the conclusion that God was in charge of everything. So I want to walk you through open and relational theology and a couple key foundation pieces here uh, in the next week uh, or in weeks ahead, we're going to talk about the love of God two weeks from now. Uh, And that is the primary characteristic of God. So keep that in mind. We also talked about God being relational last week. Well, if if you've got these two things together, uh, loving and relational, then that absolutely requires uh, people to have free will. Because if God is loving and truly relational, it's not love, and it's really not relational except for a one-sided relationship, if we don't have free will to choose uh, which way we want to go. So I'm going to keep a a, a bullet point list of things uh, on here uh, to have before you. And so that first thing is that God's nature is love, and we need to respect that and honor that. Uh, That means that we really do have free will. We have the freedom to choose uh, what we're going to do and where we're going to go and how that's all going to, how our lives are going to go. We have agency in our lives. And uh, that means that God honors that free will out of an act of love for all people. This is where it gets a little bit uncomfortable. Just let it sink in for a minute. God is allowing free will at all time for every human being and some other creatures that have conscious agency uh, to figure out what they want to do in the next step. Every human being has free will. And out of God's love for all humanity, God respects. So it's an act of love to give everyone at all times free will. Free will to do wonderful things of God and free will to do terrible things that cause destruction. And mediocre things in between that are fairly benign uh, or at least average uh, in their quality. So keep that in mind uh, with what and the framework, because that is the foundation that helps everything come in to clear vision, dealing with the issue of evil, suffering, and a powerful God who is also loving. Okay, so we have God is love. Uh, That means that free will has to be a part of the equation. God honors free will uh, for everyone all the time. And part of the realization that we have as well as uh, in terms of God being a relational God, and we'll talk about God being present everywhere at all times, Uh, next week is that God is constantly influencing uh, creation and particularly us who have agency. God is constantly influencing uh, toward the very best. So the way Ord plays this out, uh, if you want to dial up one of his lectures, I think it was actually at the end of his relation relational uh, chapter in his book, Open and Relational Theology, hit the QR cord and watch the interview because he talks about choice and the way he frames it is this. As first he says, we're not blank canvases. We didn't just come out of the womb and uh, have it, you know, no idea, no preconceptions, no 
nothing informing us whatsoever. But actually, we are deeply informed by so many factors in our lives. Obviously, our parenting, our cultural context, our time and history, different influences from all sorts of things come into play into our lives. We are not free people. In fact, I've said this a thousand times, until you come to grips with all those shaping forces in your life, they're still going to be shaping and forcing you <laughs> in ways that you don't even understand why you're doing it. It's like you're on autopilot. And this is a lifelong thing uh, that we go through. Um, all of our lives we're being influenced uh, by these shaping forces. So, so we're not quite totally free in that regard because uh, our, our choices are limited. Uh, Ord also says that, for, to unpack that a little further, uh, we don't have unlimited choices. So I may want to be um, the all-time, you know, three-point champion shooter in the NBA tomorrow. Well, tough luck for me. That's not going to happen. I may want to be the president of the United States. Actually, I don't. But if I wanted to be, I couldn't just wake up tomorrow and say, I'm choosing to be president of the United States. There are all kinds of things that come into play uh, to limit our choices. But we do have choices. And what Ord talks about is in the range of choices we have, we have choices sort of at the top of the list that are the best choices. And it may not just be one choice, it may be a handful of the best options available. And then in the middle you have some less good choices that are just sort of average or okay, maybe not so great. And at the bottom of the list you have really bad choices that we shouldn't make. In any given situation we have a range of choices. And what Ord suggests, and those with him in process theology and process philosophy and open theism, is simply that God always influences toward the loving best. I use that coupling of loving best because whatever the best is has to be qualified by love. You may think winning the lottery might be the best thing for you, but it may not be the loving best thing for you. You may think because you're a human being, like me, and the thing that might seem best to you could be rooted in greed and selfishness uh, just to be about you. That's not the loving best. You may think it's the best because it sure feels like it's the best, but we're talking about a different ideal, a different level of best. And God is always, because that's the nature of God, God is always influencing us toward that best. Uh, it comes in the way of a nudge and all sorts of different ways. Uh, there's another author that talks about God speaks to us constantly uh, through the Bible, through prayer, through circumstances, through community. Uh, God can speak through all types of things. And because God is in relationship with everyone at all time, uh, God knows what else is going on in the world. So there are some things that God might be nudging us toward that we don't really understand at the moment until later on. We see some things come into play because other people are sensing the same nudge and or a related nudge, and so they're coming into play, et cetera, et cetera. So you get the idea? Because God is loving, God gives free will, God honors all free will, God is not going to overpower anybody at any time. It's not a controlling love, but God will influence with everything God has uh, to, to influence us toward the absolute best. So far, this makes sense. What that means is, because God does not have a body, God is spirit and can't just, you know, make the decision for us uh, on, the, on whatever thing it is, can't live our lives for us. That means when we choose the loving best options, among the loving best options, again, I don't think it's just one, 
uh, that means we can count on the best outcomes possible in that given situation for that given choice uh, to, to happen. And that's a wonderful thing. It's like we have this coach in God. We have this literal spirit guide with God who is guiding us, who has more knowledge about everything else that's going on in the world. And and so God's loving best <laughs> in those options, they really are uh, better than we could probably ever imagine. And pursuing those things leads to the best for us, for our loved ones, for our communities, for our nation, and for the whole world. That's that's amazing. Beautiful things happen, and we see that happen uh, throughout history. Uh, so there are times when this happens. Uh, however, the opposite is also true, or even in the in-between is also true. When we choose not to go for the loving best, but just choose mediocre, uh, we get mediocre results. The outcomes are just eh, not great. They, they may feel great because they may be completely uh, driven by selfishness and greed and preoccupation, uh, egocentrism, that type of thing. And they, they may seem great because they feel great for us because we're, we're rocking it. Uh, but it could be that the rest of the world is suffering by our mediocrity. So we know it's also possible for individuals and communities and nations to choose the absolute worst option. And when that happens, we think of the worst examples of human beings in history and the great atrocities uh, from uh, from the Crusades to Manifest Destiny to an America uh, to uh, American slavery to World War II and Nazism and the Holocaust uh, the list goes on and on um, genocide you know still taking place in different parts of the world um, these are the kinds of things I'm talking about obviously not the loving best of God with terrible terrible outcomes so that's the next thing uh, that we see on the list. And what that means is uh, that we can thank God for, um, for, the, for the good nudges that led us to the level loving best, but we can't blame God uh, for the bad things because it was never God's idea in the first place. God did not choose the Holocaust. God did not choose American slavery or manifest destiny. God did not choose the Crusades. Even if people said God chose them, that doesn't mean that God chose them because they clearly are not part of what love is about. So in this framework, let's think through the Joseph story. So first of all, you have dad. You might want to take a sip of coffee just to get ready for this. So you have God in relationship uh, with Jacob. Um, really interesting story in Jacob's life too. Genesis is just a fascinating story. And by the way, uh, keep this in your head right now. Um, that Genesis was not written just as an interesting storybook. It was written to the people of Israel for them to understand themselves as a people, their own development as a nation. So it's not really about one family. It's about the entire family of Israel. And by extension, we need to read this not as just a story about people in the distant past. This is our story. This Genesis has the good, bad, and the ugly uh, from from start to finish. And this story is no exception. So Joseph's dad, Jacob, played favorites. At some point, he had to realize this was a bad idea. Why? Because God is always going to influence toward the loving best. And the loving best does not say, treat one of your kids with absolute favoritism over the other, so much so that everybody absolutely knows it. But he did. Terrible choice with terrible consequences. 
So that led to choices for uh, Joseph's brothers. They had to decide, what are we going to do with this? Are we going to be able to see this as our dad is making a terrible choice here, but we're not going to join him in terrible choices because the presence of God, which is always loving, is always going to influence toward the loving best, which is going to say, hey, figure out a way to manage this thing, figure out a way to deal with this thing. It's not Joseph's fault uh, that his father is treating him as the favorite. So let's not treat him harshly. Let's figure out a way to be mature about this and seek the loving best. But they didn't. Instead, they wanted to kill him. By the way, Joseph was no angel here. Uh, he flaunted it. He had ego about it. He threw it in their brother's faces in different ways, and that did not help at all. So you have God <laughs> certainly trying to influence the loving best in Joseph's life, and Joseph chooses not to take it. He chooses poorer options. And in his situation, the poorest option, which is throwing it in his brother's faces and telling him one day you're going to be bowing before me. I mean, this is horrible, horrible stuff. So it just goes from bad to worse. They want him dead, want to leave him for dead. It, cooler heads prevail. Uh, so uh, the loving God that is influencing the loving best uh, influences some of the brothers to say, let's not kill him. Uh, then his blood's on our hands, but we, we'll just sell him into slavery. So not the loving best option, but better than the worst option. And so that led to him going, Joseph going to Egypt, and more uh, choices ensued. Uh, he's there. Uh, he's taken into uh, royalty, or almost royalty, a high staff person in, uh, in Pharaoh's empire down there. And he's doing his best. So the loving best choices, do the best you can in the circumstance you're in, and just see what happens. And so he does. He uses all of his skill set, and great things happen. But apparently he's a cutie. And a wife of his boss uh, thinks he's hot and comes on to him in no uncertain terms, throws herself at him. Joseph does the loving best thing. He says, no, I'm not going to dishonor my master uh, by sleeping with you, even though you're making it so clear that you want it. The wife at that point made a bad choice. The loving best of God is saying, eat some crow. You're making a terrible decision here. Walk away from this, figure out how to deal with your passions in a healthier way, but this is not the answer. She didn't do that. She chose the worst option and called Joseph out for trying to rape her. That got Joseph thrown into prison. After some time, he starts using his skill set again, so he's listening to the influence of God, the loving best of God, and he starts using his skill set and his wisdom uh, to make sense of things, to run the prison in a better way and things are going very smoothly, uses his gifts for a couple of guys who had a kind of a weird dream and they wanted interpretation. That was a gift that uh, Joseph had. Tells him the answer to this dream. For one guy, it was very bad news. He was going to die. The other guy, it meant that he was going to be restored, released, right back up to his uh, position that he had before. And Joseph says to the guy, hey, remember me. Uh, and the guy says, sure, I'll remember you. As soon as I get out of here, I'll put in a good word for you. And then that guy makes a bad choice. He forgets. He doesn't think about Joseph until some time later. And he remembers that Joseph uh, was a guy who had wisdom when it came to dreams. So then the story continues. Famine uh, comes into place. Joseph's using his skill set. He rises to the second in power over all of Egypt. And choice after choice after choice, he's choosing. He's, he's leaning into the influence of God who is constantly influencing the loving best. He's saving the nation. He's seeing the writing on the wall 
for what's coming down the pike and he's doing the things that need to be done even though they're unpopular. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a government like this uh, a little bit? We know the writing's on the wall for some major things coming down the pike, but we can't get over it because people aren't going to understand it or are going to be mad or whatever. Meanwhile, anyway, I digress. Anyway, he didn't do that, probably because he didn't have to. And so uh, he, he starts preparing the nation for famine that's going to last for seven years. Lo and behold, famine strikes. His own brothers come. What does Joseph do at this point? The influence of God is what is the loving best here? At that moment, Joseph could have uh, revealed himself and said, you're not going to believe the journey I've been on, but I'm your brother. He didn't do that. He messed with them. Uh, he kind of got back at them, took some shots at them, uh, did some dishonest things with them uh, because he wanted to see them grovel. Well, that's, <laughs> that's not the loving best of God. Uh, that comes from a very selfish place, a very wounded place of Joseph, which makes total sense. But let's not blame God for that. We see that happen in human behavior all the time. I'm sure I'm guilty of it at times. You are too, like it or not. And if you don't think so, talk to some of your, your closest people or your coworkers or people who deal with you <laughs> when you do this stuff, and they'll be sure to let you know that, in fact, you pull this maneuver as well. It's only then at the end of the story that, that Joseph reveals himself, and it's, it's an amazing story, and you need to get a good version, uh, a more narrative version like the message version would be fun to read this uh, in, or the New Living Translation, because um, it just flows a little bit better, and you can just appreciate the story. At the end of the story, that's where Joseph says, Hey, it wasn't you. It was God. God's decisions all along, which if we kind of read between the lines there, Joseph is always also saying, even my chicanery uh, wasn't, wasn't me. I wasn't choosing to be a total jerk uh, to you guys uh, when you came back, even though I could have revealed myself immediately. I put you through hell, but it wasn't me. It was God. Sorry. <laughs> Don't blame me. It was God's will all along, the whole thing. So, you know, let's just kiss and make up and forget it ever happened. Well, that's where I would suggest that Joseph, and I appreciate where he is and his theological perspective. He probably couldn't see it any other way, given everything that he thought. I mean, he's still thinking, he's still thinking the sun is moving across the sky because everything's revolving around the world and He's not thinking about uh, the earth revolving around the sun. He had no idea about any of this stuff. So the best he's got is, well, clearly, look at this outcome. Look at how things all worked out. Um, so obviously God was in control. We do this all the time. But I'm not sure that's the only option. Um, sure, uh, I think God does move things. This doesn't take away from... Uh, from amazing things happening and even surprising things happening about things coming in line where we say, oh, that was clearly God. Well, what if we could pull back the curtain? What if we could pull back the veil and see just how many things in this massive web of human relationships that God knows all about all the time? Then we understand that the influence of the nudge that we say yes to is related to that person over there getting an influence of a nudge in the same loving best direction. And that person 100 miles away and that person 50 miles away. And it just so happened that all of us together chose in the same sphere of time uh, that loving best option. And when 
So many people choose the loving best option. A lot of things come online and a lot of things happen. So is it still God at work? Yeah, absolutely it's God at work. God is influencing the loving best for so many people and so we do see incredible things happen at times. But it's not the inbreaking of God, like all of a sudden God snapped his fingers like Thanos and there we go, it's all taken care of. This is the influence of God working with a lot of people and a lot of spaces over time and these things coalescing into amazing outcomes. This happens in individuals, this happens in families, this happens in communities, in cities, in nations, and can happen globally. So we see that when great things happen, we truly can thank God because beautiful things come from the heart of God. Loving things come from the heart of God. So when we see love win, when we see love and beauty win, when we see shalom prevail, that deep word which is more than peace, it's the depth of wholeness and well-being, when we see that happen, absolutely we thank God for God's influence in the world of, of allowing so many people to say, yes, we're going for this, and we're going to see what happens when we join hands with the Spirit of God. This is what Jesus was doing his entire ministry, is asking God continually, what is the loving best option now, and now, and now, every day of his life? And sometimes it led toward very painful things, like how he died, and yet um, that's what he sensed was the right way to go, not to fight back when he's being beat up beyond recognition, but recognizing that his silent uh, maneuver throughout his last uh, few days of life or last day of life uh, was in itself a nonviolent statement to everyone to see just how clearly this system was corrupt, both on the religious side and the political side. Could not be missed. And so all of this together, we can celebrate God for all of the good things that happen in life because we are confident that God is loving, that God honors free will, uh, all the way through, that God influenced the loving best all the way through, and therefore when we see a lot of people choosing the loving best and we see great outcomes, thank God for that, because that's coming right from the heart of God. But we can't blame God for the bad things when we know that none of those bad decisions are coming out of the loving best, loving nature of God. It's not God's influence. It's not God's will. So when you have horrible people doing horrible things, choosing, ho making horrible decisions that cause horrible pain on an individual level or family level or community level, national level or global level, we don't blame God for that because that has never been God's heart. God is love. God leads and influences toward the loving best. Some of you have been through horror in your life and you wondered where was God? God was there influencing all the time, and the jerk that hurt you did not choose the loving best of God. Blame the person for not having the heart or the capacity to choose well. But God was also with you as you went through that horror because God is relational and God is also loving. God suffers with us as we go through it. You don't think God heart, God's heart breaks? Uh, when we choose so poorly that it causes great pain? Oh my goodness. Who, who more than God understands the level of pain and suffering that happens in the world when his kids, so to speak, uh, cause so much harm on some of his other kids? 
uh, however much we're breaking, it's breaking God more. It's like, why, why are you doing this? But it's not God's fault. It's not God's fault that people chose not to listen to the loving influence of God. As I think about this with my own life, this makes total sense. There have been things in my life where I look at it and think, man, it just feels like God showed up. And I think the things of God did show up because myself and other people around me sense this is what God wants us to do. And when that happens, sometimes it's just magic. And you're like, holy cow, this <laughs> God is alive and well. And this is so clear. But we don't have to go that full way of saying, well, God's in control of the whole chessboard. Uh, this way of open and relational theology makes a lot of sense. And I know personally in my own life, uh, when I think about the pain that has been inflicted on me when people have done horrible things to me and there have been some pretty big shots taken at me over the years, I can look at that and, and say, man, that person did not choose the loving best. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to blame God for that, man. That is, that is not God at work here. These people are choosing... Uh, a mid-grade to even a low option uh, for how they're going to deal with whatever they're whatever they're about to do to me. I don't blame God for that. Just like I don't blame God for the stupid things I've chosen when I've been obstinate, when I've been driven by ego, selfishness, greed, pride, whatever. Uh, when I've made uh, mediocre to bad choices in my life, I cannot blame God for that. I am not a pawn on the chessboard if I reflect on it enough, I can think through all the influences that motivated my decision. That's that's legit. Uh, I can't blame my parents for everything or culture for everything, but certainly these these were shaping forces that helped shape the way that I think about everything. And so, yep, they, they're a part of the equation, but at the end of the day, and this I really want you to hear, at the end of the day, you and I are 100% responsible for the choices we make. 100% responsible. We can't control what other people are going to do to us, but we can control our response to whatever's happening to us. It's not God making this thing happen to you. You have agency. And that actually is very empowering good news. Because whatever you're going through, the Spirit of God is going to influence the loving best. That's good news, because if you continually to continue to choose the loving best, which again is not an ego-driven, selfish-oriented, greed-oriented thing, but it's the loving best based on the love of God, outcomes that are more beautiful, more loving, are going to come. They may not come in grandiose ways, but they will come. That's been my experience. I believe that's ex the experience of the characters that we see in Scripture. So I hope today uh, that this brings you hope, gives you a framework to understand why terrible things happen in the world, but also why beautiful things happen in the world. Because you can still have your faith. In fact, it motivates me to pay more attention. How can I be a part of the loving best that's happening in the world? You know, the framework of Jesus uh, and the prayer that he taught us to pray it really was that. It was a framework. It was a way of thinking and being in the world. It starts and ends with recognizing who it is we're trying to listen to the most, and that's God. So I want to end today uh, with a prayer that I've offered um, many times before, especially throughout COVID, 
And this is to remind you that this God that we serve isn't just relational with us here in the United States, but is a global God that speaks all languages. And God is at work with all the people that you're going to hear praying the same prayer. Uh, all at work with them, influencing all of them. And I just want your mind to expand and wonder what what beauty could take place if all of us together not only said the prayer, but actually lived the prayer. So may it be true of you. I look forward to seeing you next week. Make good choices, people. <laughs> Listen to the voice of God who is with you and will lead you to the loving best. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in.